And we are back with another episode of Studio CPO. I am delighted to be joined in studio today by a a good friend and a great public servant, Jessica Garvin. I should say Senator Jessica Garvin. Hi there. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. It's here. Yeah. I can't believe it. It flew by. Well, um, obviously, you and I have known each other for a number of years, so I could... I could give your background <laughs> off the cuff, but I'll let you put it into your words. What okay. what would our listeners want to know about Jessica? Wow. Well, um, I'm really not that interesting, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. So I'm from the metropolis of Marlow, Oklahoma. Home of the outlaws. Um, home of the outlaws. God's country, as I refer to it very often. Um, I live in Duncan with my little family of five. Um, so my husband, Stephen, and I have been married for 14 years. And we have three biological children that are still living at home. Um, and then our oldest son, Matthew, came to us through foster care. He is 26, and he is actually in Africa right now in the National Guard. So he is deployed. And then next is Brooks. He is He's going to be 13 on Sunday. It's breaking my heart. And then our nine-year-old Collins and our six-year-old Tress, she runs the roost, if we're being honest. Well, and not only does she run the roost, she's also developing into a wrestler. So if she doesn't get her way... She'll kick your butt. That's kind of what I got the sense. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying, really. Um, so yeah, we've got, we've got the four kiddos and, uh, just really proud of all of them. They're just good humans, which is what we're aiming for. And then, um, my husband actually worked for DHS for Mm -hmm. almost 18 years and, um, we, he left in August and made a career change and now he runs our family owned hospice. We, with, uh, several business partners, um, own a hospice company in Wichita Falls, Texas, and, um, just really excited about that new business. Uh, And then I am actually a nursing home administrator uh, here in Oklahoma, a licensed administrator. I'm not currently practicing as that, uh, but also have my assisted living license. And so um, that's kind of my my background, my trade. I got my start in long-term care right out of college. Um, Actually, I did some internships in long-term care while I was in college and started working for Farm Care USA. So mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of Farm Care. So I worked for Kent and Julie Abbott for uh, about eight years, nine years before leaving and going to work for Jeff Gregston and Marlowe. And um, so I've never had a job that wasn't in long-term care until I got elected. So it was a huge transition, but, um, but it's been a good one. So I, I need to recap your introduction a little bit. Okay. Um, First of all, thank you for fostering. Uh, that is something that you and I share in common is that we both fostered and then adopted uh, young people from the foster system. Uh, then you did not give your university a plug. And I'm, I'm stunned. Oh, so here's yeah. your chance to say Boomer Sooner. Yeah, OU. So I am an OU alumni, a proud OU alumni. And um, so graduated there with a degree and a couple minors. And I've actually considered going back recently and getting a master's in healthcare administration. And so hopefully that will happen um, 
you know, maybe within the next couple of years in my free time. In all of your free time. And I have a lot. So, yeah. And yeah. so you mentioned you were, you're a nursing home administrator. Mm-hmm. You still carry that credential, though you're not actively involved. Right. Um, so, so how do you move from taking care of seniors, caring for some of our state's most vulnerable, which you were doing day to day, and I know you're still very involved around that community. What, what made you take this step to run for the state legislature? Um, just a very brief moment of insanity. Yeah. Um, no. So really, I was very heavily recruited to run for our Senate district, um, and I have been involved in politics for a long time um, through care providers. I worked on some legislation I will never forget going and talking to Senator Cory Brooks about policy and Senator Paul Scott about mm-hmm. policy um, and just have always been really involved in kind of the legislative affairs of care providers. And then I also sat on the board of directors for Ocala, um, the Assisted Living Association for about nine years, 10, well, I guess it's longer than that, probably like 12 to 15 years, and was the committee chair for Mm -hmm. the legislative committee. So I've always been really interested in public policy, um, but never thought I would run for office until I was recruited. And so um, I kind of always thought that people decided they were going to run and then started that process. I didn't realize that people actually were recruited to run. but that's kind of what happened to me, and uh, you know, it worked out. I feel like um, God really put people in my life that um, it was just kind of the right place at the right time kind of situation, and uh, I've enjoyed it thus far. So um, we'll see how much longer I'm here. Well, 24 is upon us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're living in 24, and uh, those of us that have been around the Capitol for a long time, uh, we probably think more aligned with legislative session than we do calendar year. Mm-hmm. So you're starting a new year, first Monday in February. Uh, just as a little tease, what what can listeners of this podcast expect at the Capitol in the next four months? I think there's going to be a lot of cleanup. I think last session with the education package that we were looking at um, and I think some of it, unfortunately, just because of the timelines, was really thrown together. And we're finding that there were some logistical issues with some of the education bills that we put out there. And again, it's like not anyone's fault. It's just something that naturally happened because of kind of the fight between the House and the Senate and the governor. And so it just got um, the details. The devils are in the the devils in the details. Right. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, we just didn't have a whole lot of time to iron out those details. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of cleanup language. Um, and then so much got stalled last session because of that education package uh, kind of hold up. And so I think we're going to see a lot of refiled bills from last session. So a lot of that's um, mental health. Um, we've got a huge problem across the country, but especially you know in Oklahoma, we have mental health deserts. We have maternal health deserts. And so I think um, workforce, recruiting workforce for health-specific careers, I think is going to be another priority as well. Um, So I think we're going to see a lot of stuff in in the provider space, um, just curtailed to the the recruiting and retainment of of providers of all sizes and and all types and all disciplines. Um, 
So, uh, gosh, there's just so much. I mean, I'm working on some criminal justice stuff. I'm working on, um, of course, um, just a lot of healthcare policy. Um, I, there are a lot of uh, provider scope practice yeah. scope of practice bills that were filed last year, and there were some back and forth about those. So I think we're going to see some of that stuff too. So I, I told you when we were talking about doing this that uh, you had to give me permission to go on tangents, and so I'm I'm, I'm going <laughs> to chase one of those tangents now. Uh, 2024 is an electoral cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are actively uh, making your campaign. You'd like yes. to be reelected, so you've done that. Uh, those of us that have been around the Capitol for a long time know that electoral years bring unique policy making attempts. And um, some of those can be quite disconcerting. Um, it can concern people a lot. So just from your own observations, this will be your second electoral cycle. Uh, what would you tell to people who may hear about certain policy that is more politics than policy development? And what are ways that they can calmly communicate with their legislator their concerns when some of those hot button issues surface? I love this question because I tend to let myself get riled up sometimes when I see um, particular bills that are filed that are uh, just extreme policy. Um So I would say the best way to communicate would be definitely not threatening emails. (laughs) We get those a lot where people are like, if you vote for this, I'm going to have somebody run against you. And that's definitely not productive, right? Because most legislators, um, like myself, myself included, uh, when people say that to me, there are so many of us that are thinking to ourselves, well, let me help you fill out the paperwork because this job is, it's hard and it's um, a time away from our families and it's, it, it, it truly is a sacrifice. And so um, that's not a way to win friends or in, and influence people for sure. Um, just send, and, and do not, for the love, do not send um, the mass emails where you click on a link and it sends your lettuce. I know that you're going to hate me saying that, but like, that is the truth. Because um, number one, when we get thousands of emails every day about policy, um, if they are not a personal email from a constituent, then it honestly, it just gets sent to my spam folder because I can't, I don't have the capacity or the time um, and, and there are some legislators that do never respond to any of their emails. I personally respond to every single constituent email and then some that are not constituents if they just have questions related to my bills. So some of us actually do that work. And so we just don't have time to respond to all the spam emails unless you want a spam response. Yes. Um, and so I would just say that. Um, but then also look at the way that your your legislators vote already. Do they have a tendency of voting on extreme policy? Um, yes or no. And then take the approach that way. How does this bill impact you if it is an extreme policy or maybe someone you love? And then additionally, um, know that probably 99% of the bills that are filed that are that type of extreme policy never get heard in a committee or on the floor. And so, and and we do get stuff that is heard in the house, but it never makes it onto a committee agenda or onto the Senate floor. Um, And so, you know, just 
look at what your legislators are already voting on, because a lot of that stuff you can tell it's never going to go anywhere. And one thing you did not say, but I know by reputation, you love it when your constituents come and actually see you at the Capitol. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And they take precedent over anyone. So if I have a lobbyist or, um, you know, somebody else's constituent in my office, um, my constituents take precedent because they're my constituents. I represent them. Um, so it's always lovely to see people who care passionately about issues, whether it's about long-term care or, um, you know, education or whatever it is. It's always good to see familiar faces, um, especially because it just makes you feel like you're at home. Um, and so, yeah, I would definitely encourage people to go make an appointment or just swing by. Um, it's sometimes best to make appointments just because we do have committee hearings or we're on the floor uh, in session or we have you know, committee meetings or we're with other legislators, whatever the case is. So it's always good to make an appointment just so you know we're not going to be in a committee meeting when you make the time to come by. So let's transition specifically to long-term care for a, a second before we head to our closing questions. As you know, because you lived through it, you were actively um, administering a assisted living during COVID. You know that long-term care was ground zero mm-hmm. uh, during COVID. So you, you can understand the workforce stress. You can understand uh, the revenue stresses. You can understand all that. You, you have an appreciation for that. But we're as we emerge from COVID, which I truly believe we are, we are on the cusp of a significant wave of seniors in our state as well as nationally mm-hmm. yeah. who are going to need all levels of senior care, whether that's support to live independently in their home, um, minimal assistance in an assisted living, or significant nursing care. Um, But in order to be able to do that, it's going to require innovation, and we're going to have to continue to evolve in the way that we engage the residents and most vulnerable that we serve. Just off the off the cuff, what are a couple of areas of innovation you would like to see uh, long-term care facilities engage in as they prepare for what are some are calling the silver tsunami? Mm-hmm. Um, that That is such a complex question. Um, you know, I, I think the first thing is I I come from a very small owner. Mm-hmm. I don't, I wasn't working for a corporate um, and I've never worked for a corporate, so I know that's very different, but uh, I think a lot of smaller facilities have the ability to make up their own things and it not have, you know, this really complex um, process that has to go through for approval and that kind of stuff. So that is one benefit. Right. Uh, but you may not have the resources that a large company has. So they both have their their pros and cons for sure. Um, when I was in the middle of COVID as an administrator um, at the nursing home, I actually got my CNA so that I could help provide care for COVID patients because we had a lot of people that just were not willing or they were scared or, you know, they had, uh, they had cancer or whatever the case is. And so I think that alone is one way that people can innovate is um, by being able to provide additional disciplines. So the young, the young lady that is now the administrator is Jeff Gregson's daughter and she's also a uh, PTA um, and so, or OTA, I can't remember, uh, but she's able to wear multiple hats. Yeah. And as administrators, we know, I mean, you may be in the kitchen one day, <laughs> you may be doing maintenance the next, um, but the reality is the the more 
access you have to education and that your employees or teammates have to education, the more that I think our facilities should be investing in that education so that we have more well-rounded staff. Um, Universal workers, I think, is a great way that um, a lot of communities are kind of embracing that idea of the multiple hats. I mean, you've got personal care aides who are also helping in the dining room, who are also also giving showers, also providing transportation or life enrichment. And so I think universal workers is a great way for, for facilities of all sizes and shapes to innovate. Uh, but then additionally, I think it's going to take a lot of um, partnership with state legislature. So I had a bill last session or the session before that was vetoed, unfortunately, but uh, it opened up or broadened the education that people could provide on campuses at long-term care facilities. I was really bummed when, um, co- you know, as we know during COVID, we had the executive order that expanded that educational opportunity to the facilities um, to do stuff on site. And I was basically trying to codify that. And so, you know, I think um, one of the biggest ways that that facilities can get involved is reaching out in support when they see bills that will help them uh, finance and fund or expand opportunities for education. Because again, I just think that that's really important. And I think that that's definitely a way to innovate. And of course, there's other things like marketing and um, sales, stuff like that, that people need to focus on. But um, just looking at providing services that other facilities may not necessarily provide, I think is a really big deal. And then also finding really good, strong community partners that you can work with. So I think there's a lot that can be done both internally, but I also think that legislatively, we've still got a lot of work to do. So before we uh, transition to a couple of questions on leadership, one thing I I did want to take this opportunity to um, publicly extend my appreciation for, as you have worked in your legislative career, is all too often as voters, I think we oversimplify problems Mm -hmm. and we have an issue that we're passionate about and we forget the ramifications of everything around that issue. And and I know one area that you have put in a lot of sweat equity on is criminal justice population. Those who are neighbors that are carrying uh, criminal offenses, they made significant errors and carried a felony and figuring out ways to get them back into the workforce. Mm -hmm. And, And that's an area where for many people, criminal justice is cut and dried. They're either guilty or innocent, right. and we forget that there needs to be pathways to restoration. Yeah. And so I just I just want to say thank you for understanding that politics and policy is not always black and white. There's a lot of gray that mm-hmm. you have to work in. Yeah, that's so true, and I appreciate that. You know, I think um, it's a little bit selfish of me to just accept that without also adding, um, as a Republican, as a conservative fiscal conservative, um, you know, when we don't allow for individuals to come out of incarceration and find a stable job, they're just soaking up the, the tax dollars that we have to service people who really um, don't have the ability to work for some reason. And so, you know, I, I would say I appreciate that. But to be, you know, completely honest, I think my mentality, I mean, yes, I mean, we need second chance employers. That is an absolute, people make mistakes and people do deserve an opportunity to turn mm-hmm. their life around. Um, and so 100%, I agree with that. And I believe that it, policy-wise, it is the right thing to do. Um, I think that, I just believe that yeah. that's the right thing to do. 
you know, we, we get caught up in our local debates on that, but the, the issue we just described probably has some of the most unique coalition alignment mm-hmm. from very liberal causes yeah. partnering with very conservative yep. causes to try to advance change in that area. Yeah, it's true. And I mean, like I said, we we know that we have workforce shortages in Oklahoma. And then we have this entire population of people who are able-bodied, but they can't get a job for, you know, maybe it's a, a occupational license or an occupational licensure issue uh, because they've had a felony or whatever the case is. So how is anyone ever supposed to stop receiving federal and state dollars to supplement their income if they can't get ahead. Right. And and that's kind of my mentality about the, you know, fiscal conservative part. So yes, it's the right thing to do just as a human, but then additionally in order to get people off of of state services like Medicaid and um, you know, SNAP benefits and whatever else it is, you're going to have to give them an opportunity to better their life. Well, I'm going to wrap up two questions in one as we're coming to the end of our scheduled time. And and I ask this of every podcast guest has gotten the same questions. So I'm interested from a leadership standpoint, what is the leadership axiom or approach that you tend to fall back on? So it's kind of your yeah. core leadership principle. And then the final question, you're, you're a lot younger than me, so you don't have this full reflective look mm-hmm. back. But what do you know now? That you wish you that you wish that twenty three year old emerging into a career Jessica knew so much. Um, so the the kind of the thing I live by as far as leadership is concerned is something that Jeff Gregston has always said to me, which is you just have to surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Um, I was talking to a group today, and I said, I you know they were asking me, well, what do you see as this legislation? You know, how do you think it's going to end up? And I said, well, quite frankly, that's why we're in this room right now, because this is not my space. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers. I need you to tell me what that looks like. Um, And then the other thing that I live by that is something that my dad has always said, and and it's true in leadership, um, what other people think or other people's opinions of you are none of your business. And so... I just really had to understand that people are going to say things about you. And this is uh, answering your second question. Really, people are going to say things about you that are true. They're going to say things about you that are false. At the end of the day, you just have to remember who you are and whose you are. And, you know, if it's true and it's bad, own it. Take full responsibility. um, Move on with your life. Don't dwell on the past. um, But. Additionally, when it's not true, just remember that other people's opinion of you is none of your business. Those are sound pieces of advice. Thank you. Well, well, Senator Jessica, it's been nice to have you with us. I appreciate you championing the cause of the seniors, our most vulnerable, as well as your overall um, efforts to serve your district well. Thank you for serving. Thank you for having me, and and thank you so much uh, for being my friend and being a sounding board for me. Well, this is Stephen Buck signing off from this episode of Studio CPO. Uh, Thank you for your listenership. I hope you'll share this episode with others and look forward to talking to you soon.